Hey, this is Dan with episode 46 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. In this episode, we have a guest with a unique perspective, different from any other guest thus far. So I'm sure there will be ideas and references you'll want to revisit after you listen to the episode, episode 46. You can get show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 046. There will be a neat resource tool there, too, on how you can coach your kids or other young people in your life on how to think like CEOs. You can get that coaching tool at quigglegroup.com forward slash 046. And I am personally grateful to you if you would subscribe to and leave a review of this show on iTunes. You can do this at quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. When you do this, it helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact together. It also helps us learn what we are doing well and what content and topics you want to hear more about. So please, head over to iTunes and subscribe. Thanks. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Joining me today is the Rudolph Lamone Chair and Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland. She's also the Director of the Ed Snyder Center for Enterprise and Markets, Rashri Agarwal. She teaches that truly successful businesses are moral enterprises, resulting from productivity, integrity, and a sense of purpose. And through her role in academia and the sphere of ideas, her goal is to foster interdisciplinary research to understand the kinds of institutions that support innovation and enterprise. She says, and I'll quote, my passion is upward mobility, integrated across intellectual, psychological, and economic realms. I care deeply about growth. Achievement for me is not always measured by the level you have attained as much as the road that you have traveled. For me, the journey is the destination. And I care deeply about integrity as in the whole of a person rather than the individual parts. Thank you for being here, Dr. Agarwal. First, let's talk a little bit about your history. You were born in India. And by the way, I'm really excited to have you because I enjoyed our conversation leading up to this. And and you lived there until your early 20s. Maybe using the Cliff Notes version, if you don't mind, can you tell my listeners about, you know, what shaped this journey moving forward, who you are, so that they get a better understanding? Thank you so much, Dan, for having me on your show. And as you said, I really enjoyed our conversation up until now. And I look forward to a very interactive discussion with you, too. So before I start about myself, I really do want to appreciate both you and the listeners uh, for giving me an opportunity to share some of my own thoughts on something that I think truly, truly shapes the view of the world that we live in and as a result, the world that we do live in. So you asked me to share with you who I was, uh, at least in the early 20s, and what got me to being where I am today. 
I guess if I were to give you a Cliff Notes version, it would be to say to you that for me, the heroic individual was really never a sports star. Honestly, I'm quite a nerd. (laughs) The heroic individual for me was not the film star, though I must say that I enjoy quite a bit the Bollywood song and dance, happy, fun stories. For me, the heroic individual was always the productive entrepreneur, the business person that created a lot of value. And in that way, I must say that my father was the original, I was daddy's girl in every way of the world, but he also shaped my view of what productive people would be with integrity. Because he taught me some very fundamental values both in what he was and, unfortunately, in also what he wasn't. So my own journey has been shaped by growing up in a very, very traditional Indian family where at the same time that he was very, very entrepreneurial in the business context, my father was very traditional in his outlook towards how family members and particularly women should behave. And really, the last 30 years have been my journey of taking the best of what my father had to offer me and compensating for his views on what women ought to be in the world that they live in. So, you you know... You talked about what he wasn't. So what what was that? Is that is that the part with with his view on women and how they should act and how they should be in society? Yeah. So his the it was not just about women in society, but it was also about you know what is the the part that you commented on earlier about my view about upward mobility being something where you really need to integrate not just economic but also intellectual and psychological growth. I think he paid a lot of attention to upward mobility because uh, in the economic realm he was very much a rags-to-riches person. And intellectually, as it related to the, um, the economic activities, he very much had a growth mindset. But he was very traditionalist as it related to some of the psychological or mental or behavioral issues. Uh, He very much inherited how families should behave and interact, what are the roles of fathers and daughters and husbands and wives in a typical Indian social system. And he wanted very much for me to conform to those views as opposed to grow and be my own person in that realm. And so, but at the same time, he also gave me immense amount of freedom to go ahead and intellectually develop to be the person that I wanted to be. And clearly, he he must be proud. Hopefully, that of all the all that you've accomplished. And and you had mentioned to me that you didn't talk to your father for seven years. And I know that my listeners and uh, you know a lot of them out there have similar family issues. I mean, a lot of people go through these things. You know, how did you, you you didn't talk for seven years? How did that reconciliation come about? Yes. So so I think that the seven years that we did not speak to each other were very tough on both of us. You know, uh, as I said, being a daddy's girl in every way of the word means that I knew how deeply I had hurt him and disappointed him. 
But at the same token, so it was not something that I uh, took on lightly. But for me, it was really about, you know, this this related to a core part of my identity. Did I want to be, what kind of a person did I want to be? And so to the extent that the kind of person that I wanted to be met his approval, we were good. But to the extent that the person that I wanted to be deeply conflicted, not on just superficial elements, right? So I'm a parent now. Um, We have quibbles, my daughters and I, on many, many things, including what am I wearing? What am I spending money on? Am I being responsible? I'm not talking about those issues that you face between parents and children. And I think all of our, your, your listeners, as well as all of the people that I associate with, understand that, of course, there are the deeper issues that one truly cannot give on and those kind of conflicts versus issues where, you know, you can, you can have your way or somebody else can have their way at times. But with my father and I, it became much, much more of the deep conflict on values, on what he thought living morally and righteously was all about and what I thought living morally and righteously was all about. And on that deep conflict was where we had to separate ways till we could come together because he had very, very clear thoughts about what women should be doing in his family, what was considered okay. And for him, I was being deeply disrespectful in not appreciating, as he said, that the right and the responsibility of finding a man for me was his, not mine. So then how did the reconciliation come about? I mean, because, I mean, if those are such deep divides... How did, how did you work that, through that? So I had to walk away before we could reconcile. And I had to claim my own identity and become the person that recognized that both the right and the responsibility of not just choosing the man I wanted to marry, but also the career that I wanted to have was mine to make. And it was, I, I would like to think that my father at the end of it respected me much more because I had the courage to walk away and as a result was willing to reconcile with me. Wow, okay. Well, I listen, I am so glad that that worked out because, you know, it is hard and especially when you have such deep relationships with family and then yeah. it goes away. But I'm there are a lot of listeners, I can tell you right now out there, that can um, definitely understand where you're coming from and appreciate the struggles that go through that. So n- n- not to segue completely directly out of that, but, you know, I, it, it's funny because I talk a lot, um, and we're going to go back to business here for a second if you don't mind because I want to get back to the entrepreneurial side. I talk a lot of, 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 of disease of the ego, really, that I call CEO disease. One particular symptom of CEO disease is thinking that you're the smartest person in the room. And, you know, because you're the CEO or the leader or the parent or the professor, whatever it is, because you're in that that role. And, and, and I'll say to people, look, as a leader, if you're the smartest person in the room, you've got to find a different room. You know, look in a different room. And I've heard you talk about what I think is a perfect antidote to that thinking that you're the smartest person in the room. As, and it's having a growth mindset. And viewing a certain amount of selfishness in a positive way. Can you explain that? Of course. So, look, if I'm the smartest person in the room, what do I get out of being in the room? So, you know, so for me, it's, it's about if I am in a room, what am I learning from someone else that's in the room? What is the fresh new insight that I didn't necessarily have 
coming into the room that I walk away with, that I can now enact in my own life. That, for me, is the perspective that I should take. There is a certain amount of status that one can get and, of course, a sense of esteem that one gets because other people are looking at you because you're smart. How can you not like that, right? I mean, I have enough vanity in me to smile and appreciate somebody saying, hey, how smart, how intelligent, how great you are. But that is only to the extent that I believe that I'm truly smart and intelligent and great. And for me, what has created the ability for me to say I am smart and intelligent, and as a result, other people think that I'm great, is because I've invested in being smart and intelligent. And the way to invest in being smart and intelligent is to acknowledge there are a lot of things that you don't know and that you can always learn and know more. And so that perspective, that dedication to learning is what makes you smart and intelligent. So, okay, I love that. And, and how is it then that you think selfishness is a win-win trait? Oh, very easy. Uh, I don't mean selfishness as in I care two hoots about what you want and I want to do what I want to do. That is a very superficial definition of selfishness. Selfishness is really about I have my purpose my goals, and my desires. Incidentally, this purpose is not defined on a whim, but it is defined after deep thought and a focus on what is right, but also on a focus on what makes me emotionally happy. Because I do think that the true concept of selfishness is about being happy with who you are. But happiness, I've always said, requires a lot of hard work. It is not this ephemeral feeling of, oh, I had fun today, I got drunk, uh, you know, I saw a good movie, I had a few laughs. It is that sustained feeling that I have achieved the goals and the values that I set to achieve. It requires hard work and dedication. So if I'm willing, that's what I call selfishness, being willing to do what it takes to go after goals that you have thought about very seriously. If I have put in all of that effort in order to do that, and so have you, I cannot expect you on my whim to turn around and put away all of your thought and all of your effort and all of your desires and goals for my interests. So now what I have to do if I want to have you do something for me is I have to look at this not only from my perspective, what do I want, but what is it that you want to? And are you and I aligned in getting to a place where we can both create value together? So my being selfish recognizes that you have a right to be selfish in this manner that I'm describing and recognizing that the only way that you and I can really mutually benefit is by me respecting your needs and desires and you respecting my needs and desires, and then both of us acting together to make sure that both of us achieve what we want out of it. And that's the win-win. You know, I appreciate that is that, you know, I speak for groups like Vistage and YPO and EO, and and the the one thing 
they're very intelligent. They're very successful already in their own right. And yet they get together, and by even the very fact that they spend this time together, they're admitting that they're lifelong learners, that they need to learn. And so I, I, I would I see, when you were talking about that, I see that, that there's a selfishness there, but there's also this release knowing that, hey, I don't have all the answers. I need to be focused, me as an individual, trying to achieve the goals, but also understand that others around me are trying to achieve their goals as well. And and I, for my listeners, I want you to really think about that within your you know, business work environment. You know, are you focused on the things that you need to be focused on? And are you a, allowing yourself to realize that other people are also singularly focused, as you say, in a selfish way to try to support their family, to try to be able to take those vacations, to try to be able to... And as business leaders and owners, we need to understand... Uh, one time there was a bunch of employees of mine and they would leave right at five o'clock. And it was, I was like, you know, there's still work to be done. There's so many exciting things to accomplish. And I remember a, a business mentor, Ron Bailey of mine said, Dan, do, do they own your company? And I said, no. And he said, you know, they're, they're probably trying to get home to their families and to fun. And he said, I'd, I'd probably do the same if I didn't own the company. And so then, and it was just kind of an eye-opening moment for me on, you know, kind of what really matters and, and what's important. And my goal then as a leader is to create such a compelling vision for these people that they want to be part of what I'm doing, that of we're course. adding value together to society. You know, on another concept, Megan, who's my director of content, heard you talk about that really was a paradigm shifter for her was how you explain the idea of an active mind. Can you share that with my listeners? Yes, of course, the concept is in mine. Uh, one of the things that I will always say in terms of the defining characteristics of my own journey is being able to read Ayn Rand at a very, very critical time in my journey. And I was deeply influenced by her view of, for example, selfishness, which is exactly what I've shared with you. But this concept of active versus um, uh, closed versus open mind is something that she talks about in one of her nonfiction writings. And in fact, it goes to these multiple dichotomies, Dan, that you and I have been talking about, right? That if I am the smartest person in the room and I'm the CEO and the disease of the ego, I have already assumed that I know everything that I have to know. And that means that I have created a closed mind. And that means that I'm impervious to any new information that you are going to give me, which is going to cause me to change my mind. I really like the way you talk about this being the disease of the ego. If, if I may, I would say that that is a disease precisely because I haven't defined my ego around learning as opposed to uh, earned status that is um, in some way a fixed status. But if I have this learning mindset, then I'll say, you know, I'm not a closed mind. I am open to knowledge. I'm active as I think about it. But I'm not open as in I have not made any uh, um, decisions at all, or I haven't necessarily integrated in the past the reasons for which I have my mind situated in a particular way. So the reason why there is this difference between open and closed mind is we think we want to have an open mind. That means that it's open to new ideas. But often the person that is an open mind can also be thought as a person who doesn't want to take a stand, who wants to sit on the fence. And you and I know in business context, that person is actually the worst to have because they have no integrity. They have no 
stand to take. They are the ones that are always the bystanders that are willing for you to put in the hard work and make the decisions and duke it out and then just go along. And, and CEOs are leaders. They cannot just be open to whatever um, uh, winds are blowing their way and then move around with them. They have to stand for something. Well, so the I, active mind stands for something, but is open to listening to others and provide them good reasons why their thinking could be improved. And, and for my listeners, I want you to, to really think about that. In your own business you know, life, in your own journey, it's not that you don't – see, I think it's important that you need to listen. It doesn't mean you have to do everything people tell you to do. But to have, May I say something? Yeah, but to, Dan, have, I'm sorry, but I'm... to have options, just to have options so that you know, is there a more efficient way to do it? Is there a better way to do it? And to have that, that mindset that you don't have all the answers. Yes, please. You know, when you said it, it's important for you to listen, it was funny because in one of the, those fights early on with my father, he once says to me, you don't listen. And I looked back at him and I said, it's not that I don't listen to you. It's that you're upset because I don't do what you say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm listening. You're like, I'm listening. I'm hearing everything you're saying. I'm just not doing everything you want me to do. Exactly. And and by the way, thank you for bringing up Ayn Rand. I mean, she's just incredible. The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. I mean, two very influential books in my own life. And uh, and I'm happy to say— See, I knew you you and I had something in common that we didn't even know about. And I'm happy to say that even my my kids are reading these books and and really mm -hmm. enjoying them. So, it you know, even through time really makes an impact. You know, so so to keep going on that, what are the things— you know, the practices, routines that you practice and think CEOs need to practice to keep an active mind? Like, is there a set routine that they need to do or is there a practice that they can do each day? So for me, it is really um, not only what I do with myself, but what I also enable among my uh, subordinates, if you will. Uh, And that is giving them the permission to challenge me not by saying, oh, please challenge me, because, you know, what I say doesn't matter as much as them seeing what I do. So one of my Ph.D. students actually said this uh, when she was talking about uh, uh, me when I received my Distinguished Scholar Teacher Award. She said one of the things that she really appreciates about me is that I am not afraid to tear down even my own earlier work, especially I personally believe that I'm an intellectual entrepreneur. I'm a thinker. I have chosen my career to be around being in academics. And so my knowledge is what I create. And of course, that is my pride product. In, uh, in, in the business world, of course, what is being created are new products and services. So I think what's really, really important here is to think about each of the products and services that you've created, not as work in progress, because when you're saying work in progress, that means it's never done, but that these were products and services that you built yesterday or you built day before yesterday. The question is today, would you do the same products and services or would you modify them? And if you were to modify them, what are the issues that you would want to change? So having that kind, and again, of course, it relates to this being constantly in this growth and learning mindset. So the ability, if if my subordinates see that I have, as you call it, no ego, 
in the old products and services. In as much as I'm really proud of these products and services of what I created, but I can go back and I can say, here are the ways in which they become better. So then it doesn't become a, it has to be perfect or it's not good enough. Um, it can also be, this is what I did yesterday, and I'm proud of it. And here is where I can be even prouder today by changing those and doing it in this manner. So being willing to revisit assumptions that I had made makes me better today while not necessarily making myself question my own self-worth because I found faults in what I had done yesterday or day before. So it's also this idea that I am not infallible. I am not omniscient. Yeah. And as you said in an earlier part of our conversation, that is actually very liberating because now I don't have to make sure that it's perfect. It is the best that I can do, and I always want to do the best that I can do. But that doesn't mean that I have my high standards become a whip that I'm using against me as opposed to an enabler that's lifting me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Rajri, do you know how happy I am that you are teaching young people in America? <laughs> Thank you. Especially at the University of Maryland, how intelligent they are to have you there and what a blessing that is for those for those kids and, and the opportunity that they have to hear this this message. So there, there are three big concepts or themes that I've heard you talk about and that I think are, you know, such value add to the practice of leadership in business that I want you to share with my listeners so that they can consider and hopefully integrate them into their leadership journey. Um, mm-hmm. First, can you explain the difference between envy versus jealousy and, and, oh. and, what, and what this means for the business leaders in holding up and protecting, you know, the integrity of the free enterprise and, and free society? Happy to. So thank you for asking me. Again, uh, these are concepts that I recently became aware of myself, uh, and, uh, and they were very enlightening to me. So, so far, Dan, we've been talking about positive, inspiring emotions, right? Um, being idealistic, working hard, doing um, a lot of the things because you want to be better. But the truth of the matter is that we feel, and uh, this is why I, I think about integrity, also about the psychological realm. We have our emotions, and emotions are byproducts of our previous feelings as well as our, uh, where we are today. And so, of course, we can talk about joy, but we can also talk about envy and hate, and these are all emotions that all of us feel. As it relates to envy and jealousy, we often think of these as negative emotions. But if we were to take away the negative versus positivity out for a second, one of the things that I've appreciated about the understanding of envy and jealousy is envy is simply my desiring something that I don't currently have. And jealousy is about my desire to protect from someone else and losing to someone else what I already have. If we were to take the negative connotation out of envy and jealousy, this is really about I value something. If I don't have it, I feel envy. If I have it, then I want to make sure that I retain it. That's all envy and jealousy are. And in that sense, they are two sides of the same coin in that if you value something, 
and you don't have it, you feel envy. If you value something and you have it and you don't want to lose it, you feel jealousy. By the way, that's why we say the concept of jealous lover. You know, and this is, again, something that a colleague of mine recently explained to me. Why does this matter in a business context? Obviously, we want to be very, very successful. And we have all, and even in a personal life, we talked about how being selfish is really about defining what are your values, what are your goals, and then going after them. The negativity versus positivity associated with envy and jealousy really relates to what you do when you experience these emotions. If you feel envy, you know, Dan, I love the fact that you've got such a great following and you're so successful in reaching out to your audience. I appreciated you saying to me that within my own realm of academia, I'm very established as a scholar, as a teacher, and I'm very good. Now, both of us can envy each other for where we stand, and we may even want to aspire to be that way. So in in an earlier conversation, I told you, Dan, I would love to reach the leaders and the CEOs that you have because that is my next aspiration. That's my next value. I could envy you, and that would cause me to turn around and then say, hey, how do I get to be and achieve the values that Dan has already achieved? And that could cause me to go in a very positive trajectory, which is very, very good, in as much as I learn from you, I partner with you, I invest in the capabilities, and I invest effort. Or I could turn around and say, hey, Not fair that Dan has something that I want. How can I take it away from Dan and get it for me? Right? That is a negative strategy, not necessarily a negative emotion. And that is what you want to guard against. Envy can create either positive or negative strategies. You want to focus on the positive, not the negative. And the same holds for jealousy too. I have something. And I cherish it. But what can I do to nurture it? So again, in this context of a jealous lover, if there is a third person that is taking away the love of your life, I could go ahead and try and protect that and draw boundaries and create a very negative scenario, or I can even hurt that person. Or I could turn around and say, what can I do to nurture this relationship so I can continue to keep this value? In a business world, this relates to either cronyism or innovation and enterprise. So if you engage in innovation and enterprise, you're going to continue to be better, and that's why consumers want you, and you retain your consumers. But if you turn around and say, let me get the government to create barriers to entry, to stop, to have regulation and higher taxes on my, uh, my potential entrance, then you're engaging in a negative strategy because you are uh, allowing your jealousy to create a negative on other people that you yourself wouldn't want. And again, going back to our concept of selfishness, it also means that I have to respect the underlying civic aspects of if I should have the freedom to do what I do and people shouldn't stop me artificially or use force, then I need to respect that other people will want the same thing. So force as a response to envy and jealousy is negative. So, so for my Positive list- growth as a response to envy and jealousy is positive. 
So for my listeners, really listen to what she said because I, I love this definition. So so if you envy something, it's, it's the same way. Like if you're a business doing you know fifty million, and you want to be five hundred million. You're 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 looking at companies that are already there and what they're doing, and maybe you envy that you know where they are and where you, that's where you want to be. But in a positive way, you can use that as the driving force to get you there. Uh, and shape the journey that it's going to take to get there. From a jealousy perspective, it goes back to, and I love that you brought that up, it goes back to companies that are trying to compete. And instead of nurturing, which is the word you used, uh, the people that are already with you and the and the products that you already have and you know working on those things, some companies will go out and say, use the government to say, all right, regulate these people so that they can't compete against me. Now that I'm at the top, I want regulation. I want I want to be protected. Instead of just letting the market play out and 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 really like you said nurturing, you know, adding value, whatever term you want to use, you know, within your company, within your sphere of influence. So I love that you were able to define that. And uh, and and that's what, you know, that's I think what really hurts people is when they get into that negative. So I'm so glad that you were able to explain that and you did it so eloquently. So thank you very much for that. And in my keynote speaking and, and CEO coaching, I engage business leaders to embrace and practice the economic principle of creative destruction. Instead of of you know getting complacent and jealous like you just talked about. So you also talk about the ideas and practice of creative construction. So I say creative destruction. You talk about creative construction and intrapreneurship. Um, First, can you share, you know, your definition about creative construction? You know, what is it? Yes. So the the term creative destruction is actually one that was coined by Joseph Schumpeter, who incidentally is considered to be the father of innovation and entrepreneurial thought as an Austrian economist. And he was really pointing to this essential fact about capitalism, about markets, that really it is an economic system that reinvents itself from within, that in the process of creation, it destroys older systems. The focus of creative destruction is just to acknowledge the fact that things are going to upsell us as you have innovative new things coming up. The reason why I focus on creative construction is while I'm not, I'm not denying, of course, that there is a destruction of the old and obsolescing ways, I think that it unnecessarily creates a win-lose type of a situation as opposed to a creative construction which is framing the same concepts in a much more win-win manner in as much as, you know, when you think about creative destruction, so it's not that I disagree with the concept of creative destruction and say that old systems aren't being destroyed, but it is because I'm challenging this notion that capitalism is about doggy dog competition. Actually, capitalism is about collaboration. Markets are fundamentally about collaborations. And I, in, when I teach strategy, I do not use the term competitive advantage because I actually think that the term competitive advantage sells short the true value creation abilities of businesses and how they create value. So what do I mean by that? If if you say that markets are a place where you're competing, it immediately says, I have to win, you must lose. But if, on the other hand, I recognize that markets enable transactions, 
That means that for a successful transaction, I have to think about what's in it for you and how am I providing value for you and how are you providing value for me. Now, in creating superior value through these transactions, it may be the case that I outcompete another person who's trying to do the same thing that I'm doing but is not able to do it. But notice that in this context, the competition is a secondary consequence of the collaborative efforts that enable those transactions to occur. So if consumers are going to buy a product or service that one of your CEO's companies sells, right? It is because your CEO was able to create enough value with their investors, their employees. They were able to create these win-win transactions and as a result create a superior product or service relative to their competitors that weren't able to do that. So there is a lot of construction, collaboration that is occurring in the creative growth of economies and companies. And the destruction ends up focusing on that secondary consequence, what is being lost. But that would never be lost if something else of higher value wasn't being created in the first place. And this, this is exactly why the government, when the government gets involved and starts picking winners and losers and regulating, it doesn't allow the next best innovation from companies. Because and they're not- also keep in mind, why not, right? The, the big question to ask is, why can't governments do this as well as markets do? And that comes back to another fundamental concept that I really appreciated learning when I was reading Ayn Rand. Because she makes a very important point about the distinction between economic power and political power. Why are governments as an institutional organization different from, say, churches or from for-profit businesses or from non-profit businesses? Because across all of these organizational and institutional forms, the government is the only legal monopoly on force. And that is very necessary. That is very important because you and I, Dan, cannot do good value creation and positive collaborative transactions if you and I have to worry about the fact that you may ride roughshod on my rights or I might ride roughshod on yours. The government is the very important legal monopoly on force that we both understand that if you were to cheat me, I have legal recourse. But precisely because they are a legal monopoly on force, that force has to be used very carefully. And it cannot be used in offense. It can only be used in defense. That is where political power comes from. At the end of the day, a bureaucrat is able to threaten either taking money away from you or sending you to jail or even uh, taking your life away from you. A businessman cannot do that. The businessman has to rely on the power of incentives. They have to rely on win-win transactions. They have to rely on your voluntary consent. And the mind shuts off when you tell me what I have to do rather than ask me to think and dream and aspire to do what I can. Rashri, I love this. It, it is exactly and, and and here here's why because you're talking about value creation you're talking about you know and by the way and what are markets markets are just people and thus you you have to care for people and create products and services that create value for people yes and and so you know that's a, that's a great 
segue into, into the intrapreneurship. Intrapreneurship. Yeah, um, versus yes. entrepreneurship. What do you mean by intrapreneurship? Oh, uh, you know, entrepreneurship right now. So the term, it, this is more in academic language. Entrepreneurship, and even in, uh, I guess, in uh, popular language too, entrepreneurship is almost always equated with starting a firm or small businesses. And for me, I like to think about, and this is why the Ed Snyder Center is called the Ed Snyder Center for Enterprise and Markets. We've just talked about the positive value of markets. But, you know, when we talk about people, I really want to study the enterprising element in people. The enterprise requires you to think. And if you think about the term enterprise, it's actually a very nice word that you can use across multiple levels of analysis. So, of course, at a, at a business organizational level, an enterprise is a business organization. Notice, of course, that an enterprise can either be a brand new startup, which is what we call entrepreneurship, or it can be a very established business enterprise. But more importantly, enterprise in English language also means a project or an initiative that's hard, that's difficult. It also means showing positive, creative initiative. And of course, in that context, every one of us has absolute freedom to be as enterprising as we want, and it doesn't necessarily need to be defined only as entrepreneurship, as in, I am an entrepreneur if I go out there and I venture on my own. Intrapreneurship in this context is about me being a productive employee in an existing organization, and whether I'm the CEO or I am a line item manager, I am being enterprising or intrapreneurial because I am in this established organization context if I am using my enterprising mind and ability and initiative. So for me, intrapreneurship is the definition of individuals that foster their entrepreneurial spirit within existing organizations. And indeed, Existing organizations that remain great can only do so because of the intrapreneurial uh, activities of their employees and their leaders. So then, so then, and th- this again leads into you know you know when I speak to either either as a keynote speaker or at CEO conferences or coaching groups, many many times and and because I want other people to hear what you're saying, Rashri. Uh, CEOs will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, I, w- I wish my kids could have, you know, could hear this message of leadership, treating others well, the practice of humility, uh, charting the course for your own life. So what I would love for you to share with my audience is, is your framework for getting kids and students to think like CEOs. So how do you do this? Yes. So indeed, uh, and this is an open invitation to all of your listeners, and I say this as a parent now, I don't like to use the term force, as you can already tell, even as it relates to my own parenting. I have tried very, very hard never to tell my kids what they should do, but rather show them and advise them and facilitate their own independent thinking. But the one time when I said to my younger daughter, you will do this, no choices, is when I asked her to attend what I call the SELF program that's offered by the University of Maryland, the Ed Snyder Center. SELF stands for Snyder Enterprise and Leadership Fellows. 
This is actually the program that if you were to ask me among all of my accomplishments, I'm actually very proud of this one. And it came about, give me two minutes here, um, Dan, to just explicate how I even came up with the idea. I was, as a strategic management and a strategic entrepreneurship professor, asked to teach high school students concepts of strategic management. And you can just imagine, right, Dan? I mean, you'd be scratching your head, too, for a second. It's like, how am I supposed to get to them? What is it that CEOs think of and believe when they have not even had necessarily a job? You know, some of them do, but even with the jobs that most kids have, they're largely being told what to do as opposed to, and there are some kids, of course, that are being enterprising. I'm not taking that away. But more often than not, kids have not had this experience of leading, in a very real manner, or thinking about what it takes to be a leader. And so I was thinking about how am I supposed to give them these ideas? And then I realized they are the CEO of Me Incorporated. (laughs) And indeed, in this very crucial age of between 16 to 18, I realized below 16, they're not quite ready. After 18, they wish they would have already had this sooner. So we have a self-program for rising juniors and seniors in high school where they come to us for two weeks. And this is the one where I told my daughter, there is no choice, you are going to take it. And I'm very happy to say that immediately after she, and she, of course, took it like, ah, mom, really, do you want me to go? The day after the program was over, she sat me down and she said, mom, explain to me what's the difference between a four-year degree and, uh, uh, you know, getting a PhD. All of a sudden, she was engaged in asking me questions, taking ownership of her life, charting her own things. So as opposed to her now complaining about all of the things that I said she should be doing, she was embracing it and saying, wait a minute, this is my life. I need to take control of it. I need to figure out what are my abilities, what are my aspirations, and I need to be the one that is making the responsible decisions to go after it. And so the the framework that I offer to the students in the self-program and what I say to all of these rising juniors and seniors that I come across with, four questions that you have to ask yourself, because this is what every CEO asks. One, what is my purpose? And the answer to what is my purpose is really about what are the problems that are that in the world that I want to solve, that are deeply meaningful to me. Not just any problem, but why is this problem so important to me? And of course, notice that different people are deeply interested in different problems. And you know what? There are lots of problems in the world that need to be solved. So why not choose the problems that you are passionate about so that you're making yourself happy in the process? So really, the first question is, what's your purpose? And of course, I have a longer framework that I provide them some very practical tips on how you would answer this. The second question is, what does success look like? And what success looks like is really about finding that virtuous spiral between your abilities and your aspirations so you can stand tall and proud and say, I love what I do and I'm good at it. Of course, what success looks like is focusing on what it is that I care about, what I love. The third question is, what's your value proposition? This is about going back to the problem that I've chosen to solve. 
who are the people that are going to be impacted if I solve those problems, and what is my unique proposition to them? So what are the features, what are my abilities that are both unique, but not just unique, I'm different, but why should you care about my differences? How is this offering benefits to you? So as what success looks like focuses on what I love, what's my value proposition focuses on what you need in order for me to be, you know, so what is the benefit that I'm offering you given my abilities? And then, of course, the last question is with whom should I trade? And this then relates to bringing that win and win. So if I'm doing what I love and in doing so I'm providing you benefits, then we're both winning from this transaction and this trade. And so the four questions approach allows you to leverage markets for your own entrepreneurial spirit and foster your journey, your entrepreneurial journey, so that not only are you successful, you're happy, you get self-esteem, you're, you're hopefully becoming very rich in this process too, rich not just spiritually and intellectually and psychologically, but also materially. And in the same token, you know that you've created a lot of value in the world and you've made the world a better place. Well, I especially like the age range there. I, I agree with you that 16 to 18 range is so crucial and uh, and so I'm and for my listeners, I'll, I'll make sure that we link to that program so that you can get more information on that program. I want to support that as much as possible, mm-hmm. Rashri. I mean, that's fantastic. Thank that you're you. Doing thank that. you. And 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 I think it is important for people to find their purpose. And all four yeah. of these are great questions to answer. And so I hope that my listeners will take a second, maybe write those four down, and then really start answering them themselves and see if if you what you can come up with. Because it's only in those moments that you can really see, like, am I doing what I really want to do? Am I doing what I'm good at? Am I doing, you know, the things that bring passion to my life? And and I'm convinced that if you can find your passion and master it, really do well, you know, the sky's the limit. And, and, and there will be enough crazy people on this planet that will pay you to be the master, regardless of what it is, whether it's snowboarding or like my daughter, beach volleyball or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, that's the great thing about our, the market that we live in with, within that context. And, and so let me ask you a couple personal questions, if you don't mind. Of course. Uh, is there one book that you would recommend to someone new to leadership position? Absolutely. Atlas Shrugged as a young professional. That's great. Notice Atlas Shrugged. The heroes are all CEOs and industrialists and entrepreneurs. And they're celebrated, not denounced like most of our, you know, the, the typical stock villain in Hollywood movies is the CEO, is the businessman. And that makes me so sad. Yeah, that's great. Well, first of all, so that was probably the most impactful book that my son read. He's 23. Um, he, I mean, it really changed his thinking. It really made him think more deeply on, on ver- a, a lot of different issues. So what, what is your personal leadership style or philosophy, and how did you develop it? What's my personal leadership style? Well, I actually developed it growing and realizing how, where I was wrong. So fundamentally, I think I, I was always smart. But honestly, I never applied my smarts to school. So I was your typical tomboy partying, doing all of the rebellious things in these crazy 18 to 22 years old. And I took my intelligence for granted. Um, In fact, there was another thing that Megan had asked me, you know, what would I say to my 20-year-old self? 
I would say, so this is really the long answer to you, how did I develop my personal leadership? I would say to my 20-year-old self, be gentle to yourself. And don't necessarily react against something. Find out what, you know, don't be against something. Find out what you want to be for. Because doing something as a positive is much better than reacting against something. And in doing that, you have to discover what is it that you want to be. You need to then figure out what is it that you need to do in order to achieve what you want to be. So my own personal leadership motto is I want to strive for excellence in a very nurturing environment. I, and why do I say that? When you're striving for excellence, you want to rise. If you're not nurturing of yourself or of others, you're actually bringing yourself down. And I can tell you, because I know that all of your listeners and you and I, Dan, would appreciate this. There is no harder critic that we face than the person in our own head that is being the critic and telling us the 10 ways that we could do things wrong. So for me, the personal leadership is to remind myself two things. One, be gentle to myself. And two, give myself permission to make mistakes and grow and not be so hard. But that doesn't mean that anything goes. So again, this is the the two parts where you're striving for excellence, but you're doing that in a positive, fun way. I want to have fun, frankly. So, so at the end of the day, yes, the money is the reward, the publication is the reward, the feeling of satisfaction and uh, achievement is a reward. But if I'm slogging 95% or 98% and not enjoying myself for that 1% of joyful feeling, then I've really wasted 98% of my time. How much more positive is it if I'm doing the things that I love, learning to become better at it, and then enjoying the process, hanging out with people that I really have fun with, doing that, and then the journey becomes the destination. And it goes back to a quote that I read that you wrote where you say, money is the reward, not the reason. That money, was Ed Snyder. He was oh, okay. one, one of my well, – yeah, yeah, I, I, just, I, I appreciated that because I, I do think that you know, profit is a byproduct of how well you serve people. And and yes. so you know when you have that passion and you can match it, uh, great things can happen. So yes. you, you know you shared a little bit about your family. Um, do you have a strategy to be present in their lives? Like I'm, I mean, I'm sure you're busy. You're you're teaching. You're writing. You're doing all kinds of different things. What is your uh, strategy to be present in their lives? Yes. So that's the other thing, right? So one of the things, of course, that my family will always tell you is I'm a workaholic. They love that about me and they hate that about me. But one of the things that I have learned, so two things about my personal leadership is, one, I do need to modulate um, and be realistic about what I can do and what I'm able to do just because there are so many hours in a day. So honestly, over the last few years, I have made a very focused effort, not just at work, but also at home, to be fully present So it used to be the case that I was a multitasking queen. I actually now monotask. I do what I do, and I'm fully there in that moment. But then I also understand that that means. So it used to be that everything blended, and of course what gave was my family and my kids. 
Um, now what I do is separate out the time. And more than the time, it is my mental engagement. By the way, as a woman, I'm often asked this exact issue. Uh, you know, how do you maintain work-life balance? And for me, work-life balance is not about balancing the hours in your day. Work-life balance is about a state of mind. If your mind is in balance, if you believe that all of the things that you're doing are exactly what you want to do, then you're not stressed. And then uh, 20 minutes of quality time is so much better than four or five hours of me not really being there mentally, emotionally, psychologically. You know, that, that work-life presence, what I, what I call it, mm-hmm. is so crucial because I was just speaking in Vancouver this week and this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, he said my whole life I've felt so guilty yes. because there's not a balance. And I said, there never will really be a balance. And I mean, unless there's large trust funds involved, you know what I mean? People have to work. <laughs> and so, that's and, right. and that's not a bad thing. And so, but it is that time. I mean, if, if two hours, give them the best two hours they've ever had in their entire life. And if you're truly focused, and I want my listeners to really think about this. If you're truly focused, that makes up for a lot of time. And they're going to feel the love. They're going to feel the attention. And, and, and it really makes an impact. So I just challenge my listeners to really take that. But it's also really more important. It's not just about them. It's also about you, right? So one of the things that you said about this person who came up to you, guilt is not a good feeling. Guilt drags you down. Guilt makes you whip yourself. That means that you feel like you've been a failure. So it's not just, you know, so that so there are two reasons for guilt. Either it's earned guilt or it's unearned guilt. If it is earned guilt, that means that you did something that you need to fix. But on the same token, I also warn people about unearned guilt, which is when others are fostering their expectations on you, whether it's at work or in the family, and asking you to do something that they want but you don't necessarily want. And, and then, again, just like with the earned guilt, you need to change. In unearned guilt, you need to stand up and say, no, this is who I am. These are the reasons and the choices that I'm making what I am doing. And this doesn't mean that it is a either or us against, you know, me against you kind of a phenomena. Let's work through why is it that you believe that I should be doing this Why is it that I believe that I should be doing a different thing? And then let's resolve it because you matter to me. And I don't want you to feel like I'm letting you down, but I also don't want to feel like I'm letting you down on an area that I don't think I have either a choice or want to want to change it. Yeah, that's these are all just such great points. You know, it's it's so interesting because. Everyone needs to hear this, and and that's why I'm so glad you're on the show today. I want my listeners to really sit down and, and, and you know, take each one of these points and really focus and see how they can be applied to their own life and their own thinking and mindset. So I, I, but, I like but to— notice also the mindset is not just about growth, right? But the underlying aspects require you to be truly open, to be vulnerable, and paradoxically to have the courage— to be open and vulnerable. And that vulnerable part's hard. It's not hard. It's not easy for people to do that. 
because some especially people... Especially with your kids and your family, right? Because especially as if you're the CEO, you're the main breadwinner, you are the one that's going out there with all of these responsibilities, and, and especially with your kids, you're, you're the person that they look up to. If you project strength, then that, of course, means that they feel safe. But I have found paradoxically that my relationships with my own daughters have become so much stronger when I drop the pretense of strength. And when I said, here is who I am, here is why I'm doing what I'm doing, and here are the things that I could do better, yes. I have a conversation with my kids on a regular basis, and I say, you know, I want to be the best father, of course, and there's never going to be a perfect and then I asked this question, what should I do more of, less of, add? And it's funny because over the, I started doing that when they were five. And, you know, over the years, the questions have changed or the answers mm-hmm. have changed. You know, at first it was, you know, get, let me eat ice cream all the time and let me do all these other things. And, yeah. you know, and then I would have to say no or yes or whatever I decided. But it, it really, you know, what did it do really? It got us talking, communicating and understanding that there is no exact guidebook to being a CEO or to being a parent or to being a friend. And so we're all kind of going through it together. And so let's go through it together. And, and, you know, and, and the point that you just made, Dan, one of the other things that I often use is the ABCs of value creation. Um, and this is really what we're talking about, right? Creating values, not values as in money, but value as in you and I value our time together. So how do you create value together? But what I loved about what you just said is that's the A. A is acquire information. I have at least found that often I let my kids down because I assumed that they wanted X when they really wanted was Y. And I was working so hard to give them Y when what they wanted was X. And so just acquire information. Ask, what is it that you want from me? What is it that I can do to be better? In many ways, it was like, wow, really? That's all you want? I can do that very easily. Why am I busting my, <laughs> my, you know, my mind to get onto something which I thought you really, really wanted and turns out you didn't even want that? So that relates to B, build on common interests which is what is it that you want, and then, you know, it may be, and what is it that I want, right? So not the positions, right? I want to go see this movie, and you want to go exercise or whatever. But if the building on common interests is really about the connectivity, then what is it that both of us can figure out how to be connected on, we can both enjoy, as opposed to these positions? No, this is what I have fun in, this is what you have fun, this is what I want you to do. Then we get into this very negative, vicious, uh, you don't want what I want and I don't want what you want, and we're not going to get any harmony together. And so, A, acquire information about the other person, not just about you. B, build on common interests. And then C, create value together and claim your prize. So then all of us get to do something that's positive and we feel good about. So for my listeners, acquire, build, and I love to create value and claim your prize. That's a great way uh, to say that. And so, all right, well, tons of great information here today. And, and I like to ask this question to really, you know, to really prime people to think about their purpose, as you said, and, and how they really want to be living their life. And the question is, and, and I ask this, you know, when, when I meet people and within my speeches and, and as I travel around the country, and it's very difficult for me to ask because it, it messes with me mentally. You know, I can't even get it out of my own head. And, and by the way, as I ask this to you, for my listeners, if you don't have kids, you could just answer the same question by inserting, you know, friend or family. But 
Rajri, how do you want your children to describe you to your grandchildren? So if the, if the grandkids say, you know, mom, dad, what was grandma really like? How, how would they answer that question? Or, you know, how, what would they say about you? And in, in your, in your, not what would they say, I guess, in your wildest fantasy, what would you want them to say? How would you want to be described? Well, you're stumping me because I haven't thought about that. So if I were to talk about it very impromptu, I guess if I were to close my eyes and think about what is it that my daughters are saying to my grandchildren. By the way, I don't know if I'm going to get grandchildren, <laughs> which is one thing I really do want. Um, I guess what I would want them to say is that mom was, she lived life wholeheartedly. Anything that she did, she did with full seriousness and full intention, but she had fun while she was doing it. She made hard choices, often very difficult ones. She didn't shirk from making those choices, and she was willing to live with the consequences of all of her actions. And she truly, truly loved what she did and the people that she did with. So if she couldn't do these things without, without, if she had to do it alone, she was miserable. But she did it with other people that she really connected with. You really saw her full personality come out in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, and in all of its humility. That is a fantastic answer. You know, Rajri, thank you so much for being here today. And, Thank and, you for making me think about that. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and as a father of an empowered daughter, you know, that I have, I, w- I will tell you this, that I will tell her that I want her to listen to this because I want her to hear, <laughs> hear your voice. And, 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 of course, not just your voice, but the, the impact, the, the, the mindset behind it, the, the intellectual side. I mean, it's just so powerful, and, 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 and especially the ideas behind it all. Um, Thank you. You know, to to make sure that we're thinking outside of the norm and challenging ourselves to be the the next best version of ourselves. So, where can my listeners find out more about you? Well, I do have a website which is much more scholarly and talking about what my own next aspirations are. Then, uh, two things: one, I am thinking about writing a book, and what you have just given me is more encouragement that I should write this book on creating or fostering yourself. Um, I'm assuming that you would say yes, so that your listeners could read more about me. Absolutely. So is there a website or anything that we can direct them to? Well, I have to create that. So yes, there is a website, and I'll be happy to share that with you immediately after we hang up. Okay. Um, It's a work in progress. In the next six months, and this is also where I would appreciate um, your help too, Dan, along with your listeners, is I do want to uh, become much, much more of a public intellectual. Much of my life up until now and my goals up until now have been making sure that I had something to say, feeling comfortable that this philosophy, this intellectual journey that I've carried within academia is also something that is going to create value for the CEOs of the world, for the future business leaders, for individuals as they seek to achieve their purpose. I believe that I now have a message, and I would appreciate 
opportunities within you, you know, your listeners' spheres um, and otherwise to, to really talk about this because I can grow through that. And within the next six months to a year, I really expect this website to really transform itself as I invest in doing exactly that. Well, what so I really I want to do, I really website. want, I really want to take you on the road and go across the country and have a bunch of pe- a bunch of people send uh, their not of their their employees but their kids. I mean, just to to hear you and what you have to say, and 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 there's so much, and and so you know, it, from value and and for my listeners, I'll make sure that you know we'll have all those links in the show notes to you know of, of the program that she's putting on uh, when she has her website everything at quigglegroup.com forward slash zero four six that's quigglegroup.com forward slash zero four six because from value creation creative construction envy versus jealousy so many great takeaways Rajri, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Dan. Really and maybe you can it. ask me to come again in six months, and I'll be able to talk a little bit more and provide even more of these concepts as I'm creating them. Well, we look forward to it, and thank you again. Thank you, Dan. Have a good day. As a reminder, you can get the show notes for this episode of Garage to Goliath at quigglegroup.com forward slash 046. Remember, there's a resource tool at quigglegroup.com forward slash 046 on how to coach your kids or other young people in your life on how to think like CEOs. We talked a little bit about CEO disease in this episode. If you want to learn more about CEO disease, you can get a free copy of my leadership ebook about CEO disease at quigglegroup.com forward slash CEO disease. Also, this episode was with an awesome guest. This is a perfect episode to share with friends. Pop them a text or send an email with the link quigglegroup.com forward slash 046 to share this episode. And remember to subscribe in iTunes at quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. Subscribing helps others find the show. And please leave an honest review. Your reviews help me get better as a host and help me make this podcast better for you.